Most investments carry risk, but there's one that is all upside. The only risk-free investment is an investment in yourself. The Globe and Mail is the largest business newsroom in Canada, interpreting and unpacking macroeconomics, housing, policy decisions, and world events. Enjoy a comprehensive suite of business newsletters, breaking news, and market updates straight to your inbox. As a subscriber to the Globe and Mail, you'll get access to investor tools like advanced charting, portfolio with the Wellscope report card, providing independent six-factor review of your portfolio, and stock screener to help you find the right investments. The Globe and Mail is offering a special digital subscription rate just for Looney Hour listeners. For a limited time, get access for $75 a year for your first year. For more details, visit globeandmail.com slash podcast. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back or have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 72. As always, joined by the three amigos, we got Keith Dicker of Icecap Asset Management and Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. What's uh, what's shaking, Keith? I got nothing shaking. I'm here in Halifax. We've had snow three times this winter and that it evaporated a day after, I think. I think all the ESG funds are soaking soaking it up, Rich. <gasps> Uh, we'll get into that later. Uh, what's going on with me? Um, New flowers much, in the I'm background. A, I've got more flowers. I bought some flowers for me. Well, it's not Valentine's Day or Valentine's week. Um, I'm addicted to history podcasts. <laughs> and uh, I have basically been just consuming them and gobbling them up. You know, a long time ago, someone told me to read the book, Investing the Last Liberal Art which is a very popular investing book. And in that book, the guy, I can't remember his name. You can look it up. He insists that understanding psychology, science, engineering, and especially history is very, very, very important. And I took that to heart, perhaps a little bit too much. And uh, for some reason, the last couple of weeks, I've just been devouring uh, everything to do with, uh, yeah, China, Portugal, Ch- uh, the, uh, the, the Colombian exchange. So there you go. That's my nerdy. <laughs> Clearly, the dates aren't going well <laughs> if all I'm doing is listening to history podcasts. Good, good. Uh, is that a good book on sentiment? Uh, which one? The one that you just talked about. No, no, no. It's about like if you're gonna understand investing and cash flows, and risk and risk reward, then understanding a little bit about psychology, history, obviously math and and statistics, but um, but like engineering and science are very, very helpful in having sort of a lattice work approach to investing and trying not to mistakes and not not to make mistakes and hopefully making some money and and it's a great book investing the last liberal art i would definitely recommend it how the go. hell are you single i don't get it man <laughs> <laughs> or or maybe i do get it we'll, we'll we'll see um another suggestion for you rich maybe you can go on, on a uh, a dark retreat do you guys see that story this yeah. week did you actually dark check retreat out? what is that yeah, your boy aaron Rodgers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aaron Rodgers, he won this. It's uh, it, now the guy that runs the business. It's in, you know, rural. He's in Oregon. Uh, oh, I thought it was in a, Asia somewhere. Okay, sorry. No, no, it's it, it's Oregon. And uh, which, by the way, if you've never been to Oregon before, uh, it's a different world. <laughs> uh, I, I was out in Oregon a few years back. We had a little, uh, a nice little place on the beach. Their, their beach is gorgeous. Like the whole length of, of the state is all public property, all beach. Um, but I was, I had a pint with Tom Selleck once. I think I told that story once before. But anyway, but uh, Aaron Rodgers did a uh, a dark retreat, so you can find it online. And this guy set up a business where basically you he's done up these little small cottages or rooms that you you hang out with yourself and you can make it the complete a complete blackout uh, and you just get to know yourself a bit better and make make some decisions so rich that might be something for you this guy's business is booming i think it's over like 150 day waiting list to get in Jesus. there well i can't do wow. the podcast from there so sorry it's a strike one no you you can they'll give you opportunities to come out if you want You're, it's not jail you can you can do that 
So All right, Steve, Steve is not down with that. Steve is like, what the heck? That makes how can yeah, you I don't know what you guys I don't know what you guys are talking here. about, but Keith, there's been uh increased activity in the uh extra extraterrestrial uh activity. I know we talked about UFOs, balloons being shot down last week. There was a 4.9 foot sphere uh that appeared on a Japanese beach. Uh, police have surrounded it. Uh, another flying object has mysteriously landed on a Japanese beach that is making uh, front news headlines. So for all you conspiracy theorists out there, Keith is uh, devouring this one. You know, one of my favorite movies is the original Planet of the Apes. Have you guys seen that? You yes. Get the, the punchline at the end. That's what the Japanese beach photo looks, looks something like. Oh, God. Yeah, it was good. Okay, on. what else we got going on? It's speaking of like UFO stuff. You know, all of a sudden, the, the Fed, you know, they're in a new world again. It seems save like. us, Steve. Well, Tell us. Yeah, we're we're, we're going to get into that because I think like, um, you know, a lot of the 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 excitement at the beginning of the year was that inflation's coming down, and you know, the Fed's going to, you know, Bank of Canada, the Fed, they're going to have to start cutting rates, and and so we're obviously seeing a lot of a lot of data, a lot of anecdotes, a lot of stories that are coming in saying, uh, "Hold on a minute." So we're going to get into that, but. Uh, I think we do have to touch on maybe the one good data point that came in last week. Uh, that was Canada's CPI inflation numbers uh, coming in below expectations. Uh, so I think it was what headline inflation, I believe was 5.9% on a year over year basis. I think economists expectations were about 6.1. Uh, so this is certainly a good number for, for Tiff Macklem uh, after, you know, really seeing you know, crazy high jobs numbers over the last uh, several months, uh, a reflation. But uh, Rich, I don't know if you have, uh, you know, if you want to unpack that, what I found interesting was that, uh, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this, was the bond yields really didn't react at all. So clearly they just kind of poo-pooed the, the news, the good news, I suppose, and uh, just kept on. So Rich, what did you, what was your takeaway there from uh, CPI? I can't. I mean, maybe the bond bond market is just focused on sort of the jobs numbers rather than the inflation numbers. Who knows? Um, on the CPI, I think there's just like three things I like to order stuff. One is food inflation grew 1.1 percent month over month, which is the which is an out doesn't sound like a lot, but one month on month, if you annualize that, so whatever two times twelve is, you know, someone smarter than I can figure that out is a lot, and it's the highest month on month change or increase in 15 years. So the last time was, I think, November 2008. Someone will correct me if I screwed that up. That's a huge increase. What's important to note is that food is 16% of the Canadian CPI basket. The problem with that is that if you're a low-income family, you will spend a higher proportion of your total consumption expenditure on food, electricity, gas, heating, and, and 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 the other, the second largest increase was energy. So it was not a good month if you were a low-income family. Um, the second thing that I thought was really interesting, excuse me, I like this, um, Steve, which is the shelter component, my favorite, which is 39% of the core CPI basket had another, uh, it still rose month on month, but just barely. And its contribution, so the weight times the number, uh, is starting to roll over. Um, and so that's really, really important. And then my favorite, of course, is the three preferred measures of CPI, core CPI, which of course was ignored by the BOC and friends. And all three seem to have peaked. They're still quite high at six, six, five, and five, ten, but they've definitely seemed to have rolled over. Uh, the idea that any of those core measures are going to get back to two before the end of this year is just bogus. It just doesn't make sense. But it's it's really interesting. Um, and yeah, so we'll, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. I think it'll take longer than people expect, but we're getting there. That's, that's all I got for on the, on the CPI. So the BOC's preferred medium median and trim inflation measures are now running at about three and a half percent on a three month annualized basis. So they're, they have a target range of between inflation between one to 3%, right? So we're at three and a half. So I suppose they're getting closer to that range, but. Yeah, well, can I give myself a shameless plug? Um, it's free on my Substack. If you want to see what's every month, I'll I'll write uh, write up a little bit of a note, just to, and throw in the charts that I think are the most important. I try to write it in an easy way, but you can check it out. But yeah, you can you can see the those charts that I talk about, and and uh, yeah, comments welcome. 
What about uh, speaking on your your food groceries? I found it interesting. Loblaws uh, actually reported today. So Loblaws saying that uh, the company uh, fourth quarter results beat analyst expectations on uh, Thursday. The company says it earned a profit. Um, fourth quarter revenue rose ten percent um, from the same period last year. So I'm assuming you know those those revenues are obviously not uh, inflation adjusted. So if you had what food prices are up ten percent. Well, on the on the quarter, I mean, the reality is Canada has a has an is, a, is the land of oligopoly, right? We have an oligopoly in grocery stores, we have an oligopoly in telecom, and we have an oligopoly in banking. We probably have an oligopoly in oil and gas. This is you have, and each of those sectors has outsized margins from other comparables. If you look at other countries, and higher ROEs, if you return on equity, excuse me, if you look at comparables from other countries. So the fact that Loblaws is doing really, really well when Canada's food inflation is 10 whatever percent, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, they have no incentive to pass that to, through to the consumer. Um, inflation yeah. on utility companies too. Yeah, oh, probably. But utilities are normally like a natural monopoly and they're heavily regulated. But anyways, it's just anyway like yeah so i'm not at all surprised by that but um i don't see food inflation going down at all um it's partly to do with the shortages it's partly to do with high energy prices and the cost of heating greenhouses i know that's happening in the uk there's shortages of salad and tomatoes and all kinds of stuff directly related to the cost of natural gas these companies and greenhouses that run these Growers usually use greenhouses to do it in, in the northern climates, and they just don't find it economical to run these businesses. So they just basically shut down, and now there's no salad and, and tomatoes in the grocery store. But we all know that you don't make friends with salad. So, you know, there you go. So <laughs> at- You don't make friends with a salad? You do not make friends with salad. This has been well documented. Which Which food group do you make a friend with? Pork. Uh, I don't know. This is you don't make friends with salad. I cannot wait till you get absolutely crushed in the comments for this, Keith. This is a classic Simpsons episode where Lisa wants to be a vegetarian and Homer tells her that you don't make friends with salad, which is so there you go. That's, that is that's a good right point. There. Keith, you have pizza nights at your uh your your chalet there every Friday, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Maybe we do. I'm getting geared up for another one tomorrow night. It takes 48 hours to make proper dough, by the way. You need a cold fermentation. Uh, Rich, to comment on one of your points, you're talking about oligopolies. Or you, you forgot there, there is a monopoly actually in Canada for uh, quirky and, and socially awkward uh, economic global macro podcasts. So I think you forgot <laughs> to add that. That's yeah, a shameless true. plug as well. Right? It is a shameless plug. No uh, but on, though, with, I love it. Yeah, there's <laughs> nobody wants to go on the ice with us. <laughs> uh, well, I take that back. I think a lot of people would. Um, but with us, though, I mean, we'll, we'll tie into it as well here. But with, you know, with, with financial markets, you know, January was a pretty good month, especially, uh, you know, for a lot of the equity different parts of the equity world, you know, that got, got hit pretty hard last year, you know, like, like the NASDAQ, you know, theme type stocks. And, um, and then all of a sudden, you know, things are rolled over here in, in, in February, but agricultural commodity markets have not. So like we, we have a good exposure to that market and it's, it's really smoothed out our year already with that. And again, so just to suggest to everyone, you always have to think beyond the whole, you know, stock bond world, that uh, there's always opportunities everywhere, but we've highlighted, you know, the commodity space, specifically agricultural commodities and, and the energy sector, to, to be, uh, you know, bottoming here in in, in 23, and uh, we could have a real nice opportunity as the year goes on. I'm not quite sure it's happened yet, um, but again, it's a good example for investors. Just you know, look, look at everything, right? It it really is a, a big market out there. Rich, I have a question. You know, I remember when we were started this podcast over a year ago. I think it was like in the early days of the podcast, we were you know ch- ch- joking about CPI inflation, and you know it was, it was being underreported at the time because of these lag effects. And you know, one of the ones that we kept highlighting was like Stats Canada had like food inflation like two point three percent or something, some egregiously low number. And we're all like, oh, my God, man, like, have you been to the grocery store lately? Like, it's so expensive. And, um, you know, obviously, food prices have not come down, but I anecdotally feel like they've moderated 
Um, so I guess, you know, I'm, I'm assuming this is another one of those, like la- it's lagging. Don't expect it to come down. Like stakes never going to be, you know, what it was pre pandemic, but likely seems like it could peak out soon. Or what, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? So that's a really good point. So I should, I, I said food, but food's actually made up of different categories and that's important. Um, food is food away from home restaurants, it's groceries. Um, I mean, obviously it's takeaway, it's like fast food. So I'll read you the, the I'll read you the components. There's only three of them. It's uh, table service. So restaurants from stores, so grocery stores, and then fast food and takeout restaurants. And the one that's really jumping is the, from stores, the grocery component is actually 11.5 or 11.4%. So there's two parts to the answer. One is, yeah, I mean, these indices are always sort of misleading. And, and, but two is I challenge anyone to come up with a better <laughs> way of calculating, which is what I'm sure I said a year and a half ago, which is like, you have to sort of, I mean, you have to be sort of gentle with these indices. Like, yes, I know there's a lot of anecdotal to say that it's higher or lower or whatever it is. Um, I don't think it's moderating. I think that's the upshot. I don't think it's moderating. I think what you're seeing is the fast food is continuing to accelerate. Table services are continuing to accelerate. Um, you know, I think I posted a, 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 a job that said uh, accommodation in hotels employment is well below long-term average. I think that has part, partly to do with it. Dragging Once you lock down an economy and you fire all these service sector people, dragging them back into those jobs is going to take a significant pay cut, but pay hike. And that's going to translate directly to the ability to, to the prices of restaurants have their margins, et cetera. Yeah, um, it was a brilliant idea. Was it to shut down the economy? I mean, let's not get into that, but they, I, you know, I would say you're, you're right. It was Steve. the government. The government <laughs> did it. Now they're sending us UFOs too. Come on guys. <laughs> it's right in front of you. You got to see it. <laughs> oh God. Now, I mean, I don't, I don't know, Steve, maybe you're right. Maybe anecdote, maybe it is moderating. I, I'd well, love to hear people's I, views on that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it like kind of, Big picture, I'm like, mm, okay, so you, you know, you've got food inflation running at double digits. Maybe it's moderating, maybe it's not. You know, shelter inflation came in up what 21% highest since nine, you know, mortgage interest costs the highest since 1982. So, you know, the two things that people can't live without, which is housing, shelter, and food, are just, you know, through the roof. Um, and so I have to think about, you know, what are, what are the political ramifications of this? Like, I don't know. To me, that seems like a pretty solid recipe for social unrest. Yeah. Uh, add in housing. <laughs> Did we talk about that? Or is that three yeah. or two, Steve? <laughs> housing, shelter, food, you know, the two things you need to, to you know, survive. <laughs> oh, if only Shirley knew. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, the I other thing, but the other thing that's tied on to this now, though, I mean, obviously everyone is, you know, we're all very well aware of, Prices are going up on everything. Uh, you know, we're in the investment world, so we look at it a bit differently than than other people. But the re- the reaction to it is now happening everywhere. So labor unions, you know, they want big increases, and you know, justifiably so. They're just saying, "Hey, we need more money to live." But we're going to see taxes start going up, and and one of the, the the stealth taxes, of course, is in the housing market. They'll they'll say, "Oh, we'll keep the housing." Sorry, we'll keep the the property tax at the same rate, but they reassess everything higher or if you live in vancouver they're just outright going to tell you that they're going to what was the story steve they're going to raise yeah so the city and this is this is this you know vancouver is not the only one i know i think toronto came out the other correct me if i'm wrong but i think toronto came out more recently saying they'd have to increase about seven percent but so the city of vancouver has come out and they proposed a 9.7 percent hike in property taxes for 2023 and they've warned that an average property tax increase of 8.6 percent will be needed uh, between 2023 and 2027. So, um, yeah, I mean, massive, mm. massive shortfalls. And, and I'm assuming, Keith, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that the forecasts or the budget that you know these municipalities put out is probably predicated on you know relatively stable housing markets, right? I mean, if housing starts continue to roll off and uh, you know, these municipalities can't collect their development fees for new housing. Um, or again, you know, it just, yeah, to me is, is, uh, it's interesting. I think that, uh, the, the squeeze is on for these municipal budgets. Well, there's a couple of things with it. I mean, so, so first of all, 
the, the problem here is that the world needs more money, right? That that's what it is. And the solution is just creating another problem. So their solution is we'll just take it from you. You know, we're we're gonna tax you. We'll take that money away from you and that'll solve my problem. But yet it leaves you with a hole on your income statement or balance sheet if you're living, you know, on savings and, and stuff. Um so I, I don't again I keep going back to the, the world is synchronized now with risk. Like something is not quite right. It it doesn't look right, you know, feel right and smell right. And and you go back, you know, this again is just the next stage of this. With uh, you know, in terms of how cities, municipalities do their budgeting, um, you know, they simply look at it. They see what their expenses are coming up. And I, I don't think any of them are very good at cutting costs. Like if you're a small municipality, I don't think they have a lot of wiggle room on a lot of their costs. I mean, I think they have to pay for snow clearing, you know, the everything else they're, you know, providing, you know, to, to residents. And if they have a shortfall, they have to make it up. You know, they're not allowed to run a, a deficit usually. So then by default, they have to raise taxes. I mean, um, and again, it's tax, tax, tax. So if you're like the biggest, one of the taxes that drives me nuts, and it makes total sense. If you're going to a big city and you rent a hotel room, you know, for your stay, all of a sudden is because you're not a resident there, you know, you're paying all this room tax, the the city tax and another tax for this or that, because they're thinking, one you dollar. You don't live here. We're gonna just take it from you as much as we can. But then, then you know that takes money away from you to doing something else. Again, we're back to this same theme in that we we have all of these small micro challenges, you know, financially, economically. But if you bring it up to an aggregate level, you know, from a, a macro level, um, it, again, it, it doesn't reconcile here. Like something is something has to get adjusted, which is debt, right? Debt has to get adjusted at some point. So there's so, another angle. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Did you guys see? You've got this like, it's interesting, right? I'm just looking at it again, like we, we try to sort of steer away from politics, but you can't help but talk about the politics of this because people naturally, you know, again, we see that their, their shelter going up, their co- the cost of owning, you know, the, the home that they bought 15 years ago going up, uh, you know, the, their grocery bills going up and, and now that their taxes are going up and it's, it's interesting. Right. And, and the solution to, to all of this, um, I don't know if you, you saw it out, out there, there was an interview with, uh, with uh, Trudeau, Trudeau the other day saying that, you know, a lot of our systems are, are under pressure, but, you know, we're going to bring in all these people and they're going to sort of help fix these, these issues. But um, like I said, it's, it's interesting because it's like, well, I just think there's animosity growing because people are like, well, this isn't getting fixed. It's getting, it seems like it's getting worse. And uh, there was an interesting article out uh, last week from, I just thought it was noteworthy because it was from CIBC's uh, CEO, uh, Victor Dodig, who came out and said that, uh, that we're, on the, we're on the path to creating a social crisis in this country, which is you're going to welcome, uh, you know, last year we added 850 some odd thousand people to the country. And we don't have the infrastructure to support these people. We're going to bring in a million people in 2023. And um, there, there's no, there's no, there's no housing plan in place. Um, you know, in fact, housing starts are falling off this year due to the obvious nature of, of what's happening in in financial markets. And so, um, yeah, I found it interesting that the large Canadian bank CEO, who arguably profits, uh, definitely selling, profits, definitely profits off that, definitely <laughs> profits off more people coming into the country so they can sell mortgages, uh, came out and said, Hey, listen, you're engineering a social crisis. So, I mean, there's one, the one word that just is never in, talked about enough and it just should be at the top of every politician's mind is productivity or productivity growth. And it's just, that is the way that you can square the circle, right? If you just become a more productive economy, if debt, debt, huge debt burdens can be dealt with if you become more productive as an economy. And the way that one becomes productive as an economy 
And Canada is decidedly does not have good productivity growth. If you rank 30 or 40 OECD countries between 2014 and 2019, Canada was the fourth or fifth worst OECD country in terms of productivity growth. So let's just get that straight. The way that you do that is you invest in research and development. You build high value added industries. Uh, believe it or not, refining oil might be one of those. And you can improve your productivity growth. And that is one way that you can get yourself out of a debt burden. You can deal with more expensive you know, uh, services and goods, et cetera. The problem is we just spent the last 15 years misallocating capital, sorry, Steve, block your ears, into real estate. And our research and development spending as a percentage of GDP is at a 25-year low. And so that's the mess we're in. You know, that that's what happens, you know, when when you, we don't prioritize research and development, we shy away from the, the sectors that should be, you know, given money, and we allocate to your industry, Steve. But, right, no, and I agree. I agree. Let's like, let's call a space, space, like what the economic model seems to be for the country is add more people, bring in immigrants to basically pay for, you know, social security, yeah. all that other stuff that's going to have massive shortfalls down the road. So bring in all these people and they'll basically take care of all the old people leaving the workforce and, and we'll, we'll build them housing. We basically export housing, right? Like ramp up as many people as you can bring them to the country, build a bunch of condos, put them in there. And, and that's, that's like, that's sort of the economic model that we've been driving so well it's, mean, it's a tough one guys i mean it's 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 we know what the challenge is but the solution it's tough i mean from a demographic perspective you know we, we have to grow the population and you want it to be a younger population otherwise it just collapses over time and i think there are a lot of countries out there right now that are on the verge of you know, the slow motion collapse uh as well as china china's demographics are horrible and um, meanwhile, like I think Mexico is fantastic. I think the Americans have really good demographics as well. Um, I'm sure one of the fantasy land countries might might look good. I don't know which one, but you know, you never know. There's a there's a bunch of them out there. France, France has excellent demographics, but that's probably from immigration. Immigration, though, I would imagine, right? Yeah. Um, well, it definitely has its pauses, right? Like, don't get me wrong. I just think it's, it's, I think everything is maybe in moderation. Right now, there just seems to be like, just keep pushing the targets higher. And, and like I said, it was funny because I did a, I was at a housing conference today and, you know, all the, all the, you know, all the real estate industry types, they love it, right? I mean, it's just like, great, you know, bring them in. It's, it's we can build, build and sell more condoms. It's, it's fantastic, but it's, it's uh, you know the reality is 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 it the is it the best thing for the country to have sort of a seemingly unlimited target? I mean, we can go on and on about this. You don't need to get into the politics. But the good thing another... with but the good thing with this, right? And I'm not a believer in a century planned market, no matter what you're looking Amen. at. <laughs> and um, so if you do it the way that we're doing it in Canada. And by the way, it's not a strategy. It's just the way it's it's developing, right? That's, it is what it is. Um, if you let the economy work the way it should, uh, success will be rewarded with more success until ultimately it, it gets to a point where it's been inflated and then you get failure. But this this is where you know the, the West has done a very poor job is that they, they've actually rewarded failure over the years, but they don't let, you know, important companies and, and industries go under when they should go under. There should be a loss there somewhere. Um, so if you never let anyone take a loss on a on a bad loan, you're able to tuck it away forever, then, you know, guess what? It's going to be out there forever. Like it'll, it'll continue. And if you're penalized as a small business owner, and this drives me nuts, you know, small business owners, they, they take on so much risk, they work you know, so hard and, you know, apologies to people, you know, running the, the salary jobs, you know, with the, what is it, 35 hours a week, 37 and a half. I, I don't know what it is We're going is to anymore, a four-day work week now. Did you see that study four, in the UK? Oh, for God's sakes. I'm, I'm not finished. I'm on a good roll here. Um, but if you're a small business owner, you're, you're taking the risk with your own capital. You're probably working 60, 70, 80 hours a week and you're just grinding and you you're not getting the support from our social network that that other people are. And so it it can be grinding, right? And and those those 
people taking the investment risk, the business, they should be rewarded, whereas other people are not. I'm not explaining this properly. So the way this gets resolved is that it it just becomes untenable. It, at a point, it will reach that point, you know, where something does break into. Right, Rich? That's a good snap, right? There you go. Got Rich's attention. Uh, and that's that's the way this will get resolved, right? But when the day comes, the policymakers have to say, yeah, you know what? Um, you're a manufacturing firm in one of the Canadian provinces that always gets bailed out no matter what. We're not going to bail you out this time. You know, if you're somewhere else, you, you have to let it work. And, and I think that's that's what the solution is. But to be a politician and let that happen, you know, it's a, it's a bit tough, guys. It takes guts. It takes guts. So speaking just to, just, of... Just to, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. Rich. No, I was going to say just to support Keith's argument. I mean, I'm looking at the numbers right now. The number of self-employed people is the same as it was 10 years ago. And the number of people working for the government... <laughs> is up 20 percent uh that does obviously private sector is up 15 percent. but just to show you like where the priorities and where like the market is you know show me an incentive and i'll show you a result and it's just actually remarkable i'll share that chart in in this week's uh Looney hour substack but um, sorry spe speaking of which there was actually uh it was a decline in active businesses uh in canada so uh, a drop in full-time jobs so uh the number of active businesses versus full-time employment uh that ticked lower for the first time since the onset of the pandemic uh so perhaps perhaps maybe these interest rates are finally starting to bite and uh, we're seeing more businesses closing shop yeah, in, in this country. So interesting. Again, obviously, if you're looking for an uptick in uh, output, you know, might, might be waiting a while. And, and by the way, if you are a, a government employee, whether it's provincial or, or federal, your job is safe until the day comes they can't, you know, sell their bonds, basically. They can't raise more money. And that's when the provinces and, and the feds have to say, oh, wow, we now need to start, reduce our spending and, and stuff like that. But I'm not seeing any sign of that right now. That, that That's still, it's a, uh, it's a bull market right now. In, Tomorrow's in problem. Boring. It's tomorrow. <laughs> well, People just want some homes. Just, just, just let them live. Speaking of which, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Fed doing what they're doing. It's It's been uh, one of the worst bond market routes uh, what I think in in recent history, anyways. Um, but there was a Quebec twenty two. <laughs> <laughs> Quebec Quebec fund was uh, slammed by the bond route in worst year since two thousand eight. So their fixed income portfolio declined fifteen percent. Um, yeah, huge uh, huge announcements, Keith. I think you were tracking that one. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's Canada's second largest public fund. Yeah, I mean that that's expectation. That's what that, that number shouldn't surprise anyone. I mean, du duration lost money and 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 credit lost money as well. Like there was nowhere. The only place to hide in, in fixed income was to you know not be in fixed income. Um, so that I mean, it was, it was a tough year for that market. But what, what caught me though with with that story, it wasn't their their fixed income return. Because remember, when these guys do, when they when they speak to the media or they release report about the performance, you know, you have the negative stuff, but you also have the positive stuff. And I, I don't have the article in front of me, but I remember that the gist of it was, yeah, but our private equity, you know, it did, did really well, you know, it was up 2% or, or something like that, I, I believe. And that's what catches my, my eye. And I sort of chuckle at it because during the, uh, do you remember during the Toronto live event? Maybe not. Yeah. You guys were, bit, I was there. I had fun, but the, I remember I was chatting with a guy actually walking through the to the pedways uh, to the event. And he worked on the private equity side for one of one of the big provincial um, pension funds. And he said, "Yeah, it's kind of tough in that space. So how are they, how are you marking it? Like, are they are they marked to reality or fantasy?" And he said, "Oh, fantasy, of course. We're like, we're not taking real marks on this." And he said, "And we don't have to because like they'll never have to sell it like for." generations so when you see the uh, you know this article you know from the from the quebec uh pension fund so yeah we lost a lot of money in the bond market because that's marked to market on a daily or weekly basis they can see it they can't hide that and then the 
part of the portfolio that they did really well with, it's just because it wasn't marked properly and that's it. So I, I suspect a lot of these funds um, that their, their actual performance was a lot worse than uh, what they reported. But what people don't realize with defined benefit pension plans, there's two sides to the coin. Ah, you stole my point. <laughs> go, go. Coins? No. Go. Go ahead, Rich. You, you no, need you do it. Age before beauty. Age before beauty. Age before beauty, Keith. Tell us. Definitely age. Um, but with with people don't realize with, with pension funds, you know, you they have assets and then they have liabilities. So when interest rates, say long-term interest rates go up, it means they lose money in their bond portfolio. But the way it works from an actuarial perspective, when they're calculating their liabilities, because they're they're using a higher interest rate to discount back the liabilities, you know, from, from the future to the present, uh, they have less liability. So a lot of these plans actually have gained money on paper, you know, on, on net assets. It's it's a funny game, guys. So the, these pension funds don't get lost in the the headlines and everything that you, you'll see in the media over the next few weeks as the numbers are coming out. The bottom line is their investment portfolios lost a lot of money. And um, their liabilities have come down because rates have gone higher. But I, I have I've had this conversation with a lot of lot of funds over the years, and they always say, uh, "Yeah, that's just the way it works. It's awesome. You don't have to worry about it." And I always say to them, "Well, what if you get permanent losses on your bond portfolio?" And that's when they'll they look at me, you know, like with with five heads, you know, they. Well, that that will never happen. That's impossible. It's almost like a, a a bank not paying their dividend or cutting back their dividend, which I got into trouble with this week on Twitter, even suggesting that might happen. Is it? But it's, that it's just an awesome the, day. Isn't that just when the Bank of Japan just comes and soaks it all up? Yeah, they, they it on could. their balance sheet. Yeah, I mean they're warehousing everything right now. But if you get a permanent loss, um, you know, then it's the whole pension structure doesn't doesn't work anymore there's well, another yes. reason why there's another reason why a lot of these pen so keith nailed the asset liability point just spot on he's a cfa and he's a great investment manager so he beat me to it good for you keith but there's another reason why these pension funds lost a lot of money the last couple of years they were not invested in oil Come and roll. gas and energy because of the, the scam that is esg and what's really funny is that the chickens are coming home to roost. Is that the expression, Keith, um, on ESG? And, and it's we, something we talked about, we touched on in Toronto. It's one of my five themes for 2023. And I think, you know, we discussed uh, different reasons why it's bad, whether it's a labeling issue, whether it's charging people and effectively lying for what they're getting issue, whether it's a performance issue. But one of the main reasons why a lot of these pension funds did really badly in 2022 is because the best performing industry and subgroup was oil and gas and energy. And I, I'm willing to, own, I'm not willing to bet a, a twinkie on it, but it'll be, it will be one of the better performing sectors this year, again, because of stuff we've talked about on this pod, which is there's not enough supply and there's zero capex, but demand's not going anywhere, et cetera, et cetera. But um, so yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting, uh, wrinkle that I just think is delicious and whether it's in Europe, uh, with the recent labeling fiasco in the EU, whether it's, uh, the Texas, uh, attorney general and the Florida attorney general and several other states in America that are starting to push back on the issues with fiduciary duties and not actively, uh, allocating, uh, assets and, and resources to the right sectors and, basically, yeah, not fulfilling their promise as investors for allocating the capital in the best way possible. ESG is absolutely having a reckoning. And that's one of the reasons why pension funds did value this year. Hey, Rich, so, in, in the future, what do you, uh, it's a serious question, unlike most of my other questions, right, Steve? Uh, what do you think the future history books are going to be telling us about this period we're living in right now with you know, the ESG and, and, and all that. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think it'll be seen for what I believe it is, which is just basically marketing. It's, it's just a way of extracting fees for dubious claims on performance. And the beauty about markets and why I love them is that eventually you get called out. 
whether it's a long-term asset management capital or whatever, I just screwed the name up. FTX. If you know what I mean. Yeah, FTX, whether it's the AAA rated mortgage-backed securities that were total gobbledygook, uh, whether it's Madoff, whether it's this or that, eventually the market will find you out and expose you. And I think for people who are obsessed with ESG, you know, I just would suggest that people are, should always be quite dubious of quote unquote financial innovations, no matter how they crop up. They should not be taken at face value ever. They should be doubted. They should be investigated. They should be scrutinized as your fiduciary duty, Keith, and my fiduciary duty as an investor compels us to. And eventually, I think that it'll just be a wash. I think people will sort of forget about it and pretend as if it never happened. And a lot of the key tenants, I think, will matter. So people will be very cautious about whether or not companies care about the environment or care about the standard of their labor practices or care about corporate governance. But that was true before ESG. Any analyst who is this bottom-up analyst worth their salt, if you were analyzing a company, you were looking at the risks of environmental disaster if you're an oil analyst, of labor malpractice if you're a uh, clothing and apparel analyst, of if you're buying Tesla, you absolutely care about the governance practices of a company like that, or Tata Motors, or Daggio, or a hundred other companies that are run by families and have suspicious corporate governance practices. And any analyst who was doing bottom-up stuff would have been analyzing that anyway. The bullshit factor is that it's aggregated, it's detached from it's detached from the people who actually are affected by this. And people are just given a number and they throw it into a machine and they charge an extra fee for shit performance. And so I just think eventually it'll just be forgotten. I think that would be my, I, that's my hope maybe. I'm too biased on this, Keith, I'm sorry. We're gonna have to get a new segment on the show. Rich talks ESG. <laughs> I just let let him spiel for an hour. I know, like he can just go on and. I'll on. be quiet it's for the rest of the show. Not bad. No, what just what other the, thing? What, you ahead, want to talk Keith. about the ESG, Steve? Or well, no, I'm just going to wrap up the whole Quebec pay. So, however you guys want to calculate it, they they said they had a loss of five point six percent last year. I'd also like to add that these guys were the ones that invested in Celsius, which is the crypto banking company that blew up. Um, so these guys have had a pretty, pretty tough year at the old, uh, Quebec pension fund. I apologize to anyone that is working there. Um, no disrespect, but, uh, tough year, tough year. One, one other thing just to, um, to, to add on with, with Rich's thoughts, this is a bit, I think this is a bit different though. And what's different this time. I mean, you love those words. Oh yeah. You're always like, Oh, Oh, here, here he goes. Um, this whole ESG view, it, it's in our culture now. It, it's it's all at every single government level, at all corporate levels. It's, it's in universities. So I don't think it's as specific as, hey, it's an investment idea that bad performance will. Because I don't think these groups care about the performance, truthfully. I, I don't think they, they were more about, uh, let's get it right. And the way, so it's going to take a while to get this filtered out. But the way it does get filtered out is when you do have active investors. So I think Rich, you mentioned was it Texas and Florida you mentioned earlier. Yeah. I, I think, yeah. and 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 I'm sure there's there's other pension funds out there as well as institutional money, and they're deciding. You know what? We 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 don't agree with this, and we're yanking our money. So I think that's what will lead it to change. But until then, though, we we have this underlying culture that that's building up. So Rich's view, which is very which is very sharp, by the way. And by the way, everyone, I think if you know if people don't know us well enough, we all carry a stick around, and whether you like it or not, I think all three of us have both ends pointed pretty good, right? We we're not afraid to, to use that. Uh, but I think Rich, Rich is on to something with this, and he's been very consistent with it, and that, that this will change over time. But it comes back to this whole, hey, do you believe in capitalism or socialism? You know, I think that's really the theme earlier. And, uh, you know, the P&L, the profit and loss, that, that should win out over time. So we'll see what's happening. So I know I know BlackRock, for example, they're really struggling with assets now and in the ESG-focused funds and, and so forth. Um 
but this this is the I, I happen to think there's lots of great opportunities come up in the energy world and we're looking I, we're looking for oh sorry sorry Keith sorry Keith yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you I just want to say one more thing is I think that people need to understand like I'm in contact with a lot of institutional investors on a daily basis they're my friends their ex-colleagues, their clients. There is not one person in my sphere that thinks it's a serious thing. The dirty secret that I think everybody should know, and maybe the podcast is not the best way to tell everybody, but too late, is that nobody takes it seriously. It's all a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There's not one person who I know who is a serious, who I've been in this industry for 15 years, I have loads of contacts, friends, bosses, ex-colleagues, etc. Everything, everybody thinks it's BS. And I think that eventually <laughs> you, you can't keep a lie that big, that obvious under wraps. Eventually it gets exposed. Well, speaking of, uh, I think that's a good, good place. I think, you know, speaking of lies, uh, I think we should, we should chat about another lie here, which is... Uh, not the UFO, not the not, UFO. Not the UFO. We've already covered that. I'm very concerned. Um, the you know, Fed staff, uh, you know, now talking about a potential. You know, to, are we going to get back to two percent? I think that's now been bumped out. Uh, there's a lot of more projections coming out and saying, okay, well, hey, you know, oops, it's actually going to take longer to get to this back to this two percent inflation target. Um, there was an article the other day which uh, Jack Farley put out. Um, really good follow on Twitter where he says the potential to the, the, the potential new fed chair, which is a Janice Eberly. Uh, so she co-wrote a paper in 2019 that found that a 3% inflation target by the federal reserve would have actually led to a faster recovery out of the GFC. So there seems to be a lot more institutions, reports, papers coming out and saying, well, should it be a 2% target? Should it be higher? And uh, I think the challenge is certainly going to be, yes, inflation's coming down. Can we actually get it back down to 2%? I don't know, Keith, if you have any thoughts on that, but clearly uh, markets are starting to readjust their expectations. Yeah. So first of all, I, I don't, I think the success that central bankers have claimed over the you know pre-pandemic over the previous two decades it, they they achieved it for reasons that weren't created by themselves. You know how some people can say they're you know everyone's their, their own uh, sense of their self-worth is is higher than what it is in, in reality. Um not you of I, course. I, I, Oh, oh no, yeah, I I have pretty good self-esteem if you know me. I'm I'm not lacking in confidence. Uh but with with the central banks though, like if you look at the the O's and 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 the tens, there are a lot of other factors that contributed, you know, to that happening. And um, you know, a lot of it when you get the breaking of, of a debt bubble, you know, which happened in a in a mini way with the tech bubble breaking, and then the housing market breaking 08 and 09. When you, when that debt bubble breaks, man, that just sucks the momentum out of prices everywhere. And 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 they misattributed inflation being low during that time frame to their own skill set. And then all of a sudden, you know, prices are going, you know, you know, they're up a little bit right now, as as they would say. Um you know, and, and that, of course, was caused by, we keep going back to it, we dance around it, but it was caused by the global shutdowns and, and the policy responses around it. So for them to believe that they're going to be able to control inflation by changing the definition of inflation, I mean, come on, guys, that, that's a bit weak if you really know what's happening here. So um, that I think that answers maybe the first part of, of the question, Steve. And I forget the second question. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, was it now for the first time in a while now, um, markets are actually pricing in a higher Fed funds rate than the Fed is projecting. Um, so I think the whole time the Fed's been kind of ahead of the market saying, hey, we're going to do more, we're going to do more, and the market's not believing them. And it seems the market's saying, okay, maybe maybe you're right, and maybe you'll actually have to do more. So there certainly is a bit of a, a concern that inflation is is maybe reemerging or is going to be more challenging to to get down, just given, the, you know, I think what we've talked about on the show, right, ongoing labor 
supply constraints and, and just things that might be structural in nature, such as energy markets. I mean, so, so right now we're right to think about, I mean, we, we touched on it briefly there earlier today. Um, you know, January was a great risk on month again. And, you know, I'm chatting with people. They're like, oh, yeah, we're back off to the races again. We're back onto the races and it's it's going to be great. And then, you know, very well, people may not realize, though, that during January, the institutional guys didn't really jump on this rally. There's a lot of retail investors, money following it. And now it, it's rolling over again. And now the narrative is right back to where we were last fall in that the Fed is hiking rates. They, they're still hawkish. Um, the long bond is selling off again. Long duration assets are, are selling off again. So we're sort of right back. And, and the dollar now, all of a sudden, you know, the, the wrecking dollar, wrecking ball is, is back in, you know, full swing. And um, this, this is the environment that we were anticipating would happen. And we're seeing we're just getting back into that now. And, and maybe the low was reached yesterday, right? We, we'll see here. But if it continues like this, you know, we'll, we'll continue in this environment where there, there's a really great opportunity for some risk somewhere, you know, to, to bubble to the surface. Maybe it's a big steel ball on the beach or maybe it's something else, but it's something is, is it's out there, guys. You know, you, you can just feel it. Alien invasion insurance. <laughs> My God, you should sell that. Well, it's a lot of. A lot brewing up these days. Uh, we've got uh, Canadian banks set to uh, release some uh, some earnings here. I think TD Keith, I know you've been monitoring that as well. Yeah, Canadian banks are finally coming out with their. Uh, I say finally, <laughs> they do it every three months. But we've been waiting now for a while to, to, for the stuff. Um, and I, I love I love bank earnings. Uh, you know, the income sheet, the balance balance sheets are are the best thing. You guys don't you guys don't do you remember Enron by any chance? Where you guys were too Arthur too Anderson? Then. Is that yeah, the... they were they were hanging out then? Yeah, There's a absolutely. Netflix show about Enron, I believe. I haven't actually seen it. I heard it wasn't that good, but it is on Netflix. Yeah, you never know what angle they, they take with it. But the, the cool thing with, uh, with with Enron, I remember uh, I remember I was listening to the the, the uh, analyst call when when earnings when quarterly earnings uh, when it came out, and um, you know the the CEO I forget the guy was it Ken Lay or was he the it sounds right that sounds right I'll look it up uh, okay and uh, anyway he was going on and on about you know their you know. Earnings stuff like that, and and this analyst, I think he was with Morgan Stanley, and he asked the question. He said, "You know, we haven't seen your balance sheet for a while. Do you mind sharing the balance sheet with us?" And the the Enron CEO did lit into him. I mean, the guy must have felt like yay big uh, when it was over, and that's all everyone was talking about. And finally, people realized, geez, they they actually haven't given anyone a balance sheet, you know, forever. We have no idea, and that's the thing with financial analysis. most investors and in, in the media and you know retail investors are always focused on what is the earnings growth, you know, what's revenue growth. But you can do a lot of things on your balance sheet to help out your income statement from time to time. So back to the Canadian banks. Uh, I'm not suggesting they are doing any of that, but the financial sector is it's the best sector or industry in the investment world where you're allowed to basically create smoothing accounts to, to do things. And like, there's no other way to really resolve it, right? Because, you know, they're investing in long, long cycle loans and assets and everything. But uh, so right now the banks are going to come out. Everyone is going to be, the earnings will be awesome. They always are. They're able to do that. But they're really going to be focused on what, what's happening on their loan loss provisioning or provision for credit losses. You know, I'm, I'm old school. I use the, 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 uh, the, the, the first one I described, but we're going to see that coming out and uh, we'll get to see. And the whole thing is going to come back to whether we have a recession or not in Canada, because they're still playing at the soft landing here. So I think it's the 28th. We got the first one coming out, Steve. I think it's next week. We'll start to see them. I think TD is actually out today. Um, so yeah, you'll see, you'll see TD. It was Kenneth, Kenneth Lay and Jeffrey Skilling. Yeah, skilling. I think founders, the, uh, and I think they ended up spending a significant amount of time in jail. Uh, so. They did. They did. So, 
We think there's a interesting dynamic here that's brewing as we we're kind of touching on the Canadian banks, but you know, we've talked uh, Steve March, March the 2nd is for uh TD. I don't think anyone's out today. Okay. Well, yeah, see, it's a the problem. I don't know what I'm talking about, but um, what I was kind of touching on with the Canadian banks obviously coming out is, you know, we've chatted a lot in recent months about the private or sort of the gates being closed, basically the gates closing on, on a lot of these private mortgage funds. I think what we've talked about really is this sort of default cycle. That's really starting to pick up now. Um, you know, I think Romspin was, was one of the first that we had chatted about in the show. It was kind of the first big fund that, you know, had gated investor uh, withdrawals towards the end of last year in 2022. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I'm reading an article today that, uh, you know, one of the one of the reasons is they're actually they've filed for a lawsuit uh, against this developer that they lent to who's actually building seven towers, seven towers here in, in Richmond, B.C., where I grew up. Um, and so that's in the court system. You know, we had this Cora Mandel developer that in Vancouver that had about a billion dollars in land assets. They blew up, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago here. And um, and so you're sort of seeing this this default cycle slowly picking up. And we had actually one, um, you know, you're starting to see it in various segments you see in the U.S. So PIMCO owned office landlord uh, just defaulted on $1.7 billion mortgage. Um, and obviously we know that, you know, the office space, I think is an ongoing concern given that the return to office just hasn't really got back to, to what it was pre-pandemic. So long story short is, is talking about all these, you know, soft landings and everything um, to me, at least on the real estate side, what I'm tracking is the default cycle, particularly more so in the commercial space is, is definitely ramping up. I, I can't add anything. All I can say is what I look at. We've talked about this before, which is bellwether stocks for housing. So, so bellwether stocks are like stocks that tell you that give insight into, well, for someone like me, who's not a bottom up guy and some, not someone like Steve, who's on the ground, uh, insight into what's going on in that specific sector. So if you're looking at tech, you might look at Apple and Microsoft and TSMC and Google or whatever. What's wild is that I'm looking at it right now, the housing bellwethers and I'll, are all up. So Equitable Group, Home Capital Group, which was bought out by somebody, I think, Altisk, Sleep Country Canada, and Altria Mortgage, they're all up off their lows. And that's, so I have no idea what's going on either there, because I think you're right, uh, Steve. I think that that's the, the the default stuff and all that, maybe delinquency is probably a better word, more nuanced word, is, is starting to pick up. But yet the, the equities are telling you, party on. So I, I, that's all I have to add on that. I, I can't. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, again, boots on the ground on the residential side, I think anecdotally, um, the people are, people are out there buying houses. Weird. Um, you know, it's interesting cause it doesn't, it doesn't really quite square with the data. Right. So like, I'll just give you like one data point. I'm looking at the U S and like, I think if you don't actually like look at this with context, so uh, the seasonally adjusted mortgage purchase application index in the United States fell 18%, 18% uh, I believe it was last week, to the a reading of 147. And that is the lowest reading of uh, this, this century. It's in the 2000s here. So over the past 23 years, it's the lowest reading. But if you actually anecdotally talk to realtors in the industry, in the U.S., and follow it closely a lot of these houses are like actively in multiple offers. Like the housing market is not collapsing in the U S it's there's a, the lowest level of inventory, I think in 20 years there as well. So, and that's kind of what we're seeing here too. Like if you look at like Vancouver and Toronto home sales figures, they're the lowest levels they've been at since 2009, just after the GFC. But if you talk to any home buyer looking for a house right now, good luck. Like, most of them are competing for, for housing right now. You know, they're not driving the prices up to these, you know, crazy bubbly levels, but they're competing on housing. It's a pretty tight market. So it's weird because it doesn't really square with like, you know, the data and you're seeing these on the commercial side, you're seeing these delinquencies starting to ramp up. And you, there's obviously these risks that are like in the system, 
but like on the retail side, but the retail side doesn't seem to think or care about, you know, what a potential recession may or may not be coming and that mortgage rates are still high and the Fed and the BOC might still have to raise rents or raise rates. They just, they just, they're kind of just ignoring it. And I think that's the key, right? I mean, as of right now, there's still no recession. You know, everyone is working and all that stuff. And if we do not get one, then, you know, this will plot along until it, something else happens. And that's the whole theme right now. And I think, you know, we, we've been pretty clear that we, we do expect, we, we can't have stall speed here. We're either going to accelerate again or it's, it's going to come off. And uh, we're leaning towards we're going to come off because we know that these, these rate hikes have not been felt yet. But the biggest risk for Canada, it, it will come from outside of Canada. Something else can trip up the market here. People say, well, how will that affect Canada? It, it would affect pricing on, on the debt market. That's what would happen. So all of a sudden, you, you get this risk-off moment. Uh, Canadian dollar comes down. Um Mortgage rates go up, credit spreads are going up. You know, equities come off. You know, you, you're not, you know, you're you're not as wealthy as you think. You know, all that stuff. But you're right, Steve. Until right now, the, you know, the macro data doesn't reconcile the bottom up, and because we don't have that recession. And like, what is it? You know, I know I, some people will put more weighting into this than others, but was M two growth for the last year in 2022 was it was first time in what 40. 40 plus years, it was negative for the year. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting. Like you're like, oh, okay. Like, I, I guess it doesn't matter. Like, and I know Rich, you might not agree with that as a, as a metric to be watching, but to me, it seems, you know, relatively important. People were certainly excited and talking about it when it hit, you know, 25, 30% growth uh, at the onsets of the pandemic. I'm definitely keen on that M2. You always got to look at money supply. It's one of your most important indicators as far as monetary policy and liquidity. There's a really, I think there's a boring technical answer, which is M2 includes the excess reserves that are held on a bank, on the central bank's balance sheet that are liabilities, or sorry, that are on commercial bank balance sheets. And as QT continues, it pulls away from that M2. Because if you X out, um, which is a finance way of saying remove, if you remove the that central bank chunk from M2, money supply growth has actually been okay. And the reason is because in the US, banks are extremely healthy. Loan to values were at 70-year lows. Bank lending, loans and leases were okay. Mortgage lending up until a couple of weeks, like, you know, months ago was okay. And commercial loans, which are were fine. And so that's where I push back on an M2, but it's like a technical kind of nerdy thing that you sort of got to be really, really clued into. I understand the headlines are great, but that would be my pushback. I know I'm probably in the minority in that, by the way, camp, just for the record. But um, I think, you're, but, but be that as it may, you're right to point out that collapsing money supply, even including those central bank um, assets is remarkable, especially to the level, I think is also the other thing. So who knows? I mean, Maybe it's interesting it's, though. It's, it's tighter think, liquidity conditions. That's, that's what that means really. Sorry. I think that's just a confusing market in general, right? I mean, that's yeah, the exactly. thing is like, you know, when I ask you that, like you have to be able to sort of, dig into the weeds yeah i've spent a long time figuring it took a long time i know it's, it's in a 30 seconds blur but that like, took a long time to suss out and think about and then do the chart and then go back and go did i get that right etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's it is a confusing market hopefully we can help people figure it out so, here, so we took exactly three seconds to analyze that chart back at the <laughs> end of 2021 <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's when it was at the peak and it was easy to come off. So, so the, the, the good thing with, you know, cause you know, you can, by the way, uh, you go to yardini.com. You can, he provides all these charts and models for, for free. So you don't have to calculate it yourself. And, uh, the, the bottom line is that it, it's, it's been plummeting straight down, which means there's less liquidity being offered, which makes sense because everyone's raising rates. Uh, a lot of places are doing quantitative tightening and stuff like that. Um, you know, and some banks are maybe not lending as much as before, but you know, on a net net basis, it should be coming down. So that's that's negative. The positive is that maybe it doesn't come down much more. Do, do you know what I mean? Like you can only contract so far. And this is where we always come back to the narrative. Okay, what is the Federal Reserve doing? 
No, are they going to pause? Because as soon as they signal they are pausing, then that means, you know, the the the, the M2 growth, because it is a growth number, right? Year over year, pretty soon it'll just flatten out anyway. Rich, that's because of mathematics, by the way. That's just the way it works. Uh, you, know, you have that happen. That's why everyone's just so focused on that. But again, that narrative changed over the last 10 days. And it's still creating the, this opportunity, um, you know, for markets to do something a bit funny. Um, I have a bit of a funny story for you. Market yeah, let's related. give a funny, funny story to wrap it up. Okay. Uh, China this week announced that they are banning U.S. audit firms from the country. I saw that. They're, yeah. So they are no longer going to be allowed to audit, you know, Chinese listed companies. And I saw that. I was like, well, it kind of makes sense. You know, the Americans are kicking out the Chinese and, you know, you get tit for tat going on. But maybe this is where the recession starts. Maybe there will be a recession for accountants in 2023. Oh, so accountants are going to start like marching into the village square with their pencil forks. Does that make sense? We're trying to be yeah. funny, of course. Can't yeah. Can't wait to uh, invest in Chinese equities. You imagine you get a bunch of like angry accountants storming the Capitol. That's something to watch. So who's going to audit? Th- these thanks guys? for that. Oh, thud. <laughs> Boom. Who's who's auditing these companies then? Well, they'll just be Chinese accountants firm. No one. No State owned Chinese accountants run by the CCP. Mm-hmm. I mean, make no mistake. China is a bastion of capitalism. It's just a weird one. Would you still okay. put your money there, Rich? I sure as hell would. I would not. I would not. I don't think you're paid enough of a premium. I mean, for bank, just to give you an idea, banks in China pay, pay a 10% dividend and are trading on a six times forward earnings. <laughs> That's very, very cheap. And people still won't buy them. It's because there's shenanigans. It's shenanigans there. Well, if you have aren't. the risk of, of having your capital locked up, that, that's right. what that is. That's the story is telling right there. And if you're in, in a in a free market where, you know, you can, you know, there's extreme liquidity, you can get your money in and out whenever you want. And that's why America is so great. It's been so great for a long time of, of attracting foreign investment. People want to go there to go to school. They want to live there. They want to innovate there and all that. You know, government screw up a lot of things over time. Um, but when you allow capital, the, the, the freedom to be mobile when it needs to be, then you know, you're going to attract investment. Otherwise, you're locked in. And then you try to have to you have to try to create your own capital internally. And, you know, that's when it becomes a bit, bit of a struggle sometimes. Well, it's a good place to uh, to wrap it up. As always, we appreciate uh, your support. All we ask is that you continue to uh, share this episode with at least one friend or family member. Continue to build the Looney Hour community. Uh, if you got if you got the time and you got the patience, uh, we'd appreciate uh, a five star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts as well. And we'll see you next week.